Hi, we're Kevin and Allison Williams. Our scripture reading today is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write her certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a male be united, will leave his father and his wife, his mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, uh, Kevin and Allison. Just to let you know, uh, Kevin is one of the members of our ministry council. So if you have a problem with the sermon today, you can come talk with, uh, with Kevin just as a blessing for you. Well, I want to talk to us this morning about us. One thing that is true of us as human beings is that most of us love relationships. We love re- not bad relationships. We, we hate broken relationships, but we love, you know, the, the really close relationships, don't we? And I've often pointed this out. It's because you and I are made in the image of God. That, that's why we've just been made to have deep, open, growing relationships. Because in the very beginning of the Bible, I've pointed it out many times, God makes himself known as being one God, but God has always existed as three persons, so that God has never been lonely. God has always existed in relationship. So when he created people, he made us as people who really love lasting uh, relationships. And when we first meet people in Genesis chapter 2, we have the man and the woman whose relationships are all right. Um, They were right with God. They walked with him. Inside they were right. Their lives were whole. Their relationships with one another and with the world, all the relationships were right until Genesis 3 when things came in and messed up relationships, broke the relationship with God. People started having shame and guilt inside 
and people started blaming one another. But, but God loves us and wants to restore us to have what the Jewish people called the life of shalom, a life of well-being, which at bottom line, it's where the relationships are right again. And Jesus came. He, he came to restore things so that our lives could begin to be what God created them to be. And one of the things I'm convinced of is this, that when you and I truly follow Jesus, one of the things that should begin to happen is that our relationships should begin to be healed. And uh, we should begin to have relationships that actually last and, and that grow and, and that are open. And uh, I was talking about this on Tuesday. And Jeremy Rose you're down in the splash zone down here, Jeremy, um, drew a picture. He said, I visualize it this way, so, and I like it, what he drew. So let's, do you have the picture up here? You see, you have down in the bottom, creation, book of Genesis, how we were meant to be. But then the fall came, where people walked away from God, putting ourselves in his place, breaking that relationship, leading to other relationships beginning to be fragmented. But God loves us, and eventually he came and now we are involved in this section. We have a promise at the, at the end that all will be recreated. Do you see it? Who we will be. But we're not there yet. We're in this middle section. And I like, Jeremy, how you've done it with a variety of colors in which it's almost like a dance of life where we're engaged in relationships together. But God, and I think the different colors might even show that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit walking with us. And yet right now we have all these forces in the world that try to rip us apart and separate us. We feel that at times, don't we? And yet God is greater than those things. And so, uh, Jeremy, I've got to pull out what you wrote me. This is because it's so wise. He said this multicolor upward spiral is, is like this relational journey uh, that is at times forward. We, we find the relationships growing, but at times it feels like it goes backwards. And at times it is up uh, sidewards. But as followers of Jesus, in this relationship together with him as the triune God, ultimately it will be a journey that ends up with complete redemption and recreation. God promises us that he is with us at every moment. Now, it's this beautiful teaching that undergirds the very challenging passage that Kevin and Allison read for us today in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Because one of the relationships that was troubled in Jesus' day and still is troubled in our day was the marriage relationship. You see, according to Genesis 2, in that creation part, marriage was given to us for our benefit uh, almost in countless ways, God says, I'm going to give you someone to do life with. You're going to be one. Those of us married a long time, and Chris and I have been married 37 years. One in what ways? Almost uh, physically, there's the, the sexual union. Uh, financially, we bring things together. Uh, emotionally, uh, in terms of kinship, there are just so many ways. Spiritually, our lives started coming together. And God lets us know that he's made us in such a way that we long to have that kind of lasting relationship in this world. And I found that that's true. I mean, whether people are Christians or not, the deep longing to have a life, a relationship with someone that we can just do life with that is open where we know one another is a longing that people have. I have almost never gone to a wedding in which I sensed up there that the couple was thinking, boy, I sure hope this one doesn't work out. Boy, I sure hope we can mess this one up. No, no, no. We get into those at those times. There's this true longing that God's made us for 
to have a lasting relationship is always seen. And yet, in spite of the fact that that's true, when Jesus talked about marriage, the response, and you can read this in Matthew 19.10, is, if what you say is true, then it's better not to get married at all. Uh, A response that I continue to hear (laughs) in the world that I live in, don't you? And so today as I'm going to try to draw our attention to what Jesus says about marriage and the breaking of a marriage, I'm I'm going to ask us the question that I almost always ask when we come. Are we going to trust Jesus or trust that the world's ways are better? Now, up front, you say, well, I'll trust Jesus' ways. But let's find out what he says first, and then, then you'll have to make that decision yourself. It's not an easy topic to talk about in a public setting. Let's talk about marriage and divorce. It's very emotional. Many of us have experienced it. I doubt that there is a single extended family here where we haven't been touched by it or are being touched by it now. So many of my pastoral friends said this preaching thing is not a time to talk about this subject. You need a place like in a small group or in a seminar where people can have questions and answers because people are always going to ask, what about this pastor and what if that happens, pastor? So I want to just set your expectations low right now. I'm not going to answer every question you might possibly have. Jesus didn't either. And at one point when he was back in the house with the disciples, you can just see they press him and he responds to one of their questions. So I want you to know that. And other people tell me sometimes this topic is so personal and so emotional that you can't talk about it. And so just leave it for another place. Pastor friends tell me this. And yet I say God's word tells us about it. Jesus talked about it. And I'm not going to avoid it. But here's what I'm going to do. Briefly, I'm going to look at what Jesus said about marriage and divorce to his world. And then I'm going to come back and think about a few pastoral uh, applications and maybe hopes for our church at the end. You going to stick with me for this? I pray, pray you will. I'll watch and see if you leave. Stop that person, I'll say. So let's start with what Jesus had to say. It started with a test. Uh, There in verse 2, Jesus went into Judea and went across the Jordan. Crowds of people were coming to him and he taught them. But some Pharisees came and they tested him by asking this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I know in our day, um, divorce is sort of a judgment. We see a judgment of the law court that legally dissolves a marriage. But that wasn't the way it it was in the first century. It was then an independent action that a husband could take, and really only a husband could take, to get rid of the wife. And what had happened by the time of Jesus is divorce had become very, very common among the Jewish people, and far more common among the Greeks and the Romans in this world. So a couple things I want you to notice in the text that we're looking at. One, um, the words that Jesus speaks about marriage are not words that are being spoken to a gathering like this. It's not being spoken to a man or a woman who's just been abandoned by their spouse and wonders, what do I do? These were words speaking to people, to hostile questioners. Jesus had just gotten into Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is located. So he's really close to his death, and the plots to try to put him to death had already happened. And what we find here is people trying to trap Jesus. Uh, King Herod had already had John the Baptist put to death because John the Baptist had criticized his marriage. Did you know that? Know that? Read about it in Mark chapter 6. And so they're trying to trap Jesus in the same kind of thing. It's a sinister personal attack. So they're trying to put him into a corner and make him look bad. I I sometimes wonder, what would Jesus have said about marriage if it had been uh, the kind of person who's often come and talked with me about it? 
for example, a woman who came and said, my husband just abandoned me and the children and took everything. Uh, I think we would find him still talking about marriage as God intends it to be, but, but the issues that he would address would be different, don't you think? It would be much more like the way he dealt with that woman in Luke 7 who rushes into the Pharisees' home and nobody wants her there and Jesus welcomes her, forgives her, and offers her a new life. I, th- I think it would be more like that. So that's the first thing I want you to see. He's responding to a personal attack. Second, uh, the point that he makes, is the test that's being given, is because in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, the fifth book of Moses, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, God, through Moses, had given permission for a, a man to put away his wife and to give her a certificate of divorce and for and what was called a matter of indecency. A ma- and debates... Now, I know people who come new to church, they often think the, the Bible was all written at the very same point. <laughs> you know, it was written over centuries. So centuries before Jesus, when Moses was alive, many centuries before... Already God had said you can write a certificate of divorce for a matter of indecency. And since that time, over centuries, the rabbis and the teachers had argued about, well, what's included in that? We still ask that. What's included in the matters that can put away, a man can put away his wife for this reason and give her a certificate of divorce? And in the Mishnah, which is a collection of writings from many of the leading rabbis about how they understood the laws of Moses, there were several views given. And so I've collected a couple of them. I'll I'll show them to you here. So in the Mishnah, uh, which had latest been revised just a century or so before Jesus, this is what we read. Uh, The teaching of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found her to be sexually unfaithful. The teaching of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she spoiled a meal for him. And Rabbi Akiva says he may divorce her even if he finds another fairer than she. Now, I'm not going to do it, but I'm telling you, if I took a poll of which one of these rabbis you most would like, I bet it would divide along gender lines. I just, I, I just think it would. So you notice this. Everybody agreed that sexual unfaithfulness broke the marriage bond and allowed for a divorce and a remarriage to happen. But the majority of thinkers in Jesus' day seemed to think that a man could just divorce his wife for any reason. So essentially, even though I gave you three different rabbis, you see there are two different approaches to this. Number one, those who many would think were more conservatives, uh, those who thought that the only thing that could break a marriage bond was sexual infidelity. And number two, the more permissive group, those who thought it could be broken by anything a man didn't like. A toast being burned or whatever you might come up with. And I'll just tell you, as I look at that, though it comes to me a little differently, these two ways of looking at marriage and divorce are still the ways that they come to me as your pastor. Uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. You're with me here, aren't you? I think you are. Uh, In our church, we have people who come from all over the world in many backgrounds. And so many who come to our church come out of what many call more shame-based cultures. Those of you who come from those, you know what I'm talking about. And in many times, in shame-based cultures, you feel like there are just a set of rules given to you. And the important thing is you've got to keep those rules perfectly. 
And you almost need to pretend that you're keeping those rules perfectly. And so if you're not keeping them perfectly, you almost can't even open up your life and say, I'm struggling with this. And so that would be the first group to say, well, there's only this one small thing. And I can't talk even about what we're wrestling with. There might be abuse in the home. There might be intimidation in the home. There might be disrespect in the home. And yet the rule is what a marriage is all about. There's only one thing. So all you discuss when you discuss marriage is the rule that, that, that you're trying to, to act like we're going to keep that and have everything to be perfect. But, but Jesus is going to address that and say, that isn't what God created marriage for. He's going to do that. So the other view must be right. But no, the second view that comes to me is the one that's so much more common for those of us who have grown up in the Western individualistic world, this permissive view, that the people feel so strongly, well, God made me to be happy, and so I should be able to do whatever will make me happy. So if I'm unhappy, surely God doesn't want me to stay in this relationship. So, so in Jesus' day, if, if a man was unhappy, I found a much better looking person. I, I found somebody who cooks better. She, this other woman would make me happier. Then go ahead, let them do it, because obviously God doesn't want people to be unhappy. And that selfish perspective that makes us focus on what makes me happy Jesus is going to look at that, too, and say, that's not what God made marriage for. That if your whole life is focused on you just wanting to make yourself happy, you're not going to be happy anyway. We're made for relationships. So you see, uh, this test was trying to put Jesus in a tough situation. If he held to the more restrictive view, then people would say, listen. That view is not going to let people experience the shalom that God created people to have, and they're going to keep all sorts of things hidden. But if he went the other way, people are going to say, listen, uh, that's just going to leave the door open for everything, and the marriages that are supposed to last aren't going to last at all, and you know, you know what it's going to lead to. So bottom line, this was a test that the Pharisees thought Jesus could not pass. Either he would get into hot water, by taking a conservative view, pointing out the divorces like the Herods were illegitimate, or he would agree that a woman could be put away for any reason whatsoever and run into the backlash of the conservatives. And at least this, that those crowds in verse 1 that were following Jesus would be divided instead of wanting to support this Jesus when the accusations came against him. And I'll just tell you, when you talk about the subject, I can imagine this sort of division happening in our day, too. Can't you? So, what did Jesus say to it? His teaching comes about in verses 3 through 9. The, the Pharisees' question was only, what is lawful? Which, as some people have pointed out to me, this is the question that men seem to have asked ever since sin entered the world. <laughs> what can I get by with? What can I do to, uh, to get me out of this situation without getting into trouble with God? So they wanted to know what God would let them get by with legally. But Jesus turns back. Not, he does, he, he is not gonna, he's saying that this is a relationship, not a bunch of rules. He is saying, I, what I'm going to talk to you about is what God intended a marriage to be. And I want to come back to the very things that Jesus focused their attention upon. He says, listen, when you start asking about all these things, how can I get out of it here and what's a legitimate thing here, you begin to miss the whole point of a marriage. In fact, when you focus on those, it proves that you haven't really committed yourself to that other person. 
to making the adjustments that you should make, perhaps, to help that relationship to thrive and to grow. And in verses 3 through 9, Jesus talks about what God originally created this relationship to be. Look, I'll just show you a few of those verses. Uh, Mark chapter 6, look at verse 6. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 6. Jesus says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. An important word for our day, I think. Uh, For this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So you you see what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing out the beauty of what a marriage is supposed to be in the eyes of God. And what does he say? What does God intend for a marriage to be? I, I can't put all together even what I see, and there's more here than I can see. But let me just cite a couple of things. What is a marriage according to Jesus? Number one, it is a union of two people who become one. A union that reflects to this world the unity of the God who is three and one. Uh, If you read the book of Ephesians, it was the first series I started in here. There are several things that show our world that wonders if God is real, what God is like. I mean, Jesus' coming was the main one. He reflects the glory of God. But he points out two other things. One of them is us as a church. where people who are so different, different ages and ethnicities come together. We actually learn to live in unity. And when the world looks at this and and they see people as, as different and in Ephesians, Jew and Gentile who didn't want to be in one church together. And, 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 and Paul declaring this, he says, listen, but when you come together and serve together and pray together and love one another, the world looks at this and they see something of the unity and the faithfulness of God. So the church is one of those. And then a marriage is one of those. Ephesians 5, that when two people whose lives are very different actually come together and make a commitment that lasts. Well, actually, it reflects to the world two things. The unity of God in a world where so much is dividing us, and the faithfulness of God stick with us in the difficult times. You can just see it in our world where there's so much division and, and relationships that don't last, that, that where we make these sacrifices and commitments to keep our promises and we can demonstrate something of, of the beauty of God through our, through our marriages, the world sees, look at that and they say, God must be there because we haven't seen it anywhere else. That's one thing that a marriage is to be. Second thing Jesus says is that marriage is a gift that God gives us for doing life together. And the thing I love to look at here is he says, look, it's not the laws that bring you together. It's God that joins you together. God makes the two one. And in so many of our vows, and and I hope that if you're going to get married sometime in the near future, you'll make sure that this line is in the wedding. That what God has joined together, let no one and nothing put asunder. Because the, uh, the union isn't just a legal document. That's the way we still talk about it so much. What is a marriage? What does the law say? But instead, it's a bringing together of two lives. In which we're one in what ways? Almost countless ways. Uh, physically, yes. Uh, emotionally, 
financially. A brand new married couple last night said that they went to the bank and they were bringing their bank accounts together. And the, and the person, the teller there said, nobody does this anymore. Don't you know that it's, it's going to be so messy to separate this thing out when a divorce happens? That, that's, what, that's what they were told. Uh, familial bonds that even when our kids leave the house, do you see we're still, there's still something that ties us together? We all know this is true, that even after a divorce has happened, then years later, what do you do at the holidays? And what do you do at the wedding? There's just many things that tie us together. But when it grows together, when we, our lives begin to be shaped around one another, it is so beautiful. It's what God made us for. And here I'll bring in that great text used at so many weddings, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Amen. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Uh, a text that I particularly loved in Chicago, right? For, for Californians, this loses some of its beauty. But it, let me just say, this is really a good thing. How can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then this striking last phrase, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Is that God walking along with us in our marriages? Anyway, it's a gift to us. So that in the midst of this challenging world, we'll have somebody that will have promised himself or herself to us. We can do life together. And then the third thing, if you look into verses 13 to 16, is that Jesus talks about it as being the family, the marriage, as being a central place to bring people to Jesus. Um, because it, it goes straight into this text is making sure, make sure children are able to come to Jesus. Pastor Carol and Scott talked about this uh, last week. If I'm reading it right, they're put side by side because throughout the scriptures, the, the central place for people to come to know Jesus are in homes committed to God. That when our children watch us and they'll see us going through the challenges and our imperfections, they'll all see it, right? We've seen it in our parents and our children will see it in us. But when they see us working through things, sticking together anyway, they'll see something that is good. They'll see the way that God deals with us as we have to forgive and restore and start all over again. And one of the texts that just declares this most clearly is Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. After that famous text that God hates divorce, not people who are divorced, but anything that rips relationships apart, any relationships, marriage, surely, also relationships. God does not create relationships so that we will be, we'll rip them apart. Right after he says that, then the question comes, so what does God seek in a faithful marriage? And the answer, godly offspring. So, be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So Jesus sees marriage as such a beautiful thing that you and I should be willing to make major sacrifices to make sure that our lives come together and grow together. But if that's true... That brings us to the Pharisees' question. If marriage is so beautiful, why is it that God gave permission to give a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24? Now, the way I read it, you better listen because many people disagree with me, but I'll, so listen carefully. The way I read it, I think Jesus is teaching that God, and sometimes the translations translate it, suffers a certificate of divorce, at least permits a certificate of divorce, is to keep worse things from happening in this world. See, in the biblical world, 
if a, if a woman were to be cast out of her family, uh, they didn't have opportunities for jobs. Uh, singleness really wasn't an option. The security system, the financial system was all within the family. So if a woman were simply cast out of the home, she really only has three options. Prostitution, begging, or suicide. If a woman just were cast out of her home, before Deuteronomy chapter 24, people would look at her and say, what's wrong with this woman? If she had a certificate of divorce, she'd say, I'm a part of the community. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a beggar. I'm a part of the community. This is what has happened. And it opens up the opportunity for her to come into another family. And yes, when a woman had a certificate of divorce, uh, it always allowed for her to be able to be remarried. The certificate of divorce included these terms. Now this woman is permitted to any man. And this is what led to this question in the closed doors in verses 10 through 12. So, Jesus, you can hear them saying, If a part of the relationship is a physical bond and a woman who hasn't had hasn't been broken by by uh, adultery is given a certificate of divorce and she has to go out and marry someone else. That seems like she's going to have to break that bond herself. And that's what Jesus says has to happen. It's not the ideal that God has, but because of the hardness of our hearts, that's the way Jesus talks about it. God loves us so much that he knows that there is sin and evil in this world as we do, Jeremy, your dance and going sideways. And, up. and he has done things for us to permit, by his grace and by his mercy, to make it so that the sin of this world will not be so devastating that we can't survive. But having said all that, God's longing is that we can really live and experience his shalom by being being brought into a relationship in which we do life together, we are faithful to one another, um, live lives that honor him, have committed marriages that reflect his glory to the world. At this point, I just want to add this beautiful statement from Pastor Tim Keller. Just look at this. This is what God intends. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst, And knows you with all your strengths and flaws. Yet commits him or herself to you wholly. It is a consummate experience. I thought I might get an amen there. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well... A lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I think that's what Jesus is saying that a marriage is to be. Oh, our time goes so fast. I, I I want to get to a couple of pastoral affirmations for us here. So that's what Jesus talked to them about as he called for their marriages to be strong. What, what do I want us to take home today? Number one, I'm praying. I want us here at Lake Avenue Church to do all that we can to make sure that our Christian marriages, prayerfully our Christ-centered marriages, grow and flourish. Those who are single and in small groups with, with married people who are struggling, uh, pray and speak into and walk with 
so that our marriages can be strong and growing and flourishing. Uh, God says marriage is for our good. Jesus says he wants our marriages to grow to that oneness that makes his glory known. So I think today the thing I've been praying for and hoping for is out of the love of Jesus and our trust of Jesus and saying, okay, if that's what he says, I'll do it. I want us to recommit ourselves to our marriages. I mean, if you're in one, uh, renew your vows. Remember those promises. As far as it depends on you, recommit yourself to being a faithful, love-filled person in your marriage. Now, and, and I put that, the way I put it is intentional. As much as it depends on you. Because a relationship is always two. And sometimes the other person won't dance with you, right? I've used the illustration that Jim Dobson uses so many times, but it fits here so well. He says, in a relationship, it's like playing a beach volleyball game. And you only have three, three balls on your side. And you hit it over to the other side. And the other person says, I don't want to play with you. And just sitting there, we have two balls left, right? So you grab the second one. You hit it over the net. It just plops on the other side. The other, I don't want to be with you anymore. Why do you think I want to play with you? You only have one ball left. So you hit the third one over, and the other person says, I don't, I don't want to play with you. What are you left with? You can't play. <laughs> Except to, to keep the door open and saying, I know what God says, and, and I'll leave the door open, but you've got to hit one of those balls back here, or we're not going to be able to be in the dance. As much as it depends on you, I want you to... Uh, Make a recommitment to your marriage relationship. And, and at least this, where it might start, I think you need perhaps to find seminar or smaller groups where you can deal with this, but where it might start is a commitment to being an adjusting person and not making the other person make all the adjustments. I, I'll never forget a young couple who came and, and the uh, young woman said to me, I know he, he's, he's messed up, but I, I think I can change him. We, we sh- read my worship folder. In a, in a good relationship, we always shape one another. A relationship that's real and genuine, where we listen to one another. We listen and we change and we think about what that person says, and our lives begin to shape in the light of a relationship, right? A so-called friendship, where the one person dominates and takes every- that's either going to be very superficial or it's going to be dysfunctional. Or abusive. Uh, But a real relationship is we have to adjust. So I think a key verse, it's for our church, friendships, but for marriage, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Look at it here. Think about it. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others, count the other. More significant than yourself. If we do this, how you see what will happen in our relationships. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of the other. To the interest of the other. What does this look like? Uh, well, it looks like Jesus. I'll, I'll show you that in just a moment. That's what he did for us. In fact, I'll tell you now. Um, some people say in our relationship with God, we have to do all the changing, and, and God doesn't adjust to us at all. Think again. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, following this very text, what does this look like? It looks like Jesus. The one who, though he is in very nature, God, did not consider that equality with God something that he was going to hold on to for his own benefit. But he emptied himself. He became a servant for us. 
He died for us. Excuse me. He died for us. Even a death on a cross. Uh, So we invite him into our lives. The one who spoke creation into being by a word. And yes, we have to adjust. And that adjustment is always for the better. But just think the adjustment began with him. Out of his love for us. And that's a relationship. So in a marriage, what might that look like? I've been thinking about my own. I knew Chris would be sitting around the front row. (coughs) All right. Um, I like sports. Chris likes Downton Abbey. If you don't know what Downton Abbey is, just ask half of the English-speaking world. They are obsessed. They are addicted to this uh, wonderful... uh, When we we get a chance, (laughs) when we get a chance to watch television, um, I like to watch a basketball game or a football game, and Chris likes to watch Downton Abbey. But sometimes I find that she comes in and watches the sporting event with me. And has come to understand sports over these 37 years. It's it's really been... And at least, I'm not going to make too much of myself here, at least I know the main characters in Downton Abbey. (laughs) I have a comment. I know... I know who Matthew and Mary are. I know that they... Some of you don't know this. Some of you aren't up to date. Last night I blew it, and people were really mad at me. All I want you to know is that I'm not sure that he was altogether dead. I almost, there's a difference between being almost dead and being completely dead. I mean, I've seen worse than I saw there. My, my point, that's silliness. Okay. My point is that you've got to be able to make some relationships that come together and make some sacrifices. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting. Now that we can have, uh, live in a world with two televisions, you could have a life where you just always are sitting separately, and it's a sign of something much bigger. When you see your relationship moving in different directions, deal with it quickly. Uh, eat more meals together. Uh, talk about the sermon together. That one was way too short today, honey, didn't you think? <laughs> go, go to a seminar together. Just do some things together and start getting this life back together. That's what I'm praying for it to happen. A, a second thing I want to give us. I, I've been praying that here at Lake, we might be able to tell a new generation about the goodness and beauty and lasting significance of a marriage. And about the devastation that ripping apart a relationship has. Uh, you know, I was university president for all those years, and it was shocked me that even church-going kids had never heard a message about how God longed for marriages to stay together and how it breaks his heart and how it harms us when we rip apart what he has brought things asunder. Um, in the last Modern Family episode, you, you ever see that? I was sent this from... There was a woman named Sal. She was in her 30s. She was about to get married, and she was having a panic attack, so she grabbed the local bartender and kisses him. Uh, the two gay fellows, Cam and Mitchell, are going to be her best men. And uh, so it got into this big discussion. And Cam says, okay, you need to so- focus, Sal. You're about to make a sacred, lifelong commitment. And she said, you're not making this any better. And then the phone rings. And Sal looks at it and says, oh, it's Tony. I'm supposed to pick him up and drive him to the wedding. Everybody shut up for a second. Okay, you know what? I'm going to marry him. What's the worst that can happen? I can get a divorce. People do it all the time. 
See, that's the view of marriage that is communicated to our world. And here in the church, we need to say, oh, listen, marriage can be a beautiful thing. Hold on to it. I've pointed out, Chris and I have been married 37 years. I want to sign up for another 37. I don't know if it's biological, if it's more possible for her than for me, just to let you know. But Chris, remember you used to drive up um, to Bannockburn when I was a university president. We would go to this little local restaurant. There was a young couple there that had met. They got married. Uh, they kept watching us and talking to us. Finally, one day, we were the last two people left at lunch at the restaurant. And they sat down at the table with us. And they said, how long have you two been married? And we said, oh, 30 years. Oh, they said, we've just gotten married. And in neither one of our families were either of our parents able to keep their marriages together. And one of them, their mother, I think, had been married four times. And our father, the other one, three times. And they said, in our extended families, there's not a single example of a lasting marriage. But we watch you. And even though our friends tell us this, we watch you and we say, this is good. This is what we want. This is what we long for. I, tell, I go back. That's why I started the sermon where I did today. All people are made to see this and say, this is what God made us for. Lasting relationships. And I, I want our church to be a place that declares to this world the beauty of marriage and the devastation of ripping apart a relationship that God intends to be together. And, and then third, and this is my third big prayer for us as a church, is I want, I want our church to be a place of God's grace and healing for broken people, including marriages. I mean, Jesus saw, I mean, God saw it in Deuteronomy 24. He wanted them to be together, but sometimes they went apart. And so he suffered it and created ways that they could take the next best step forward. And many times we're put at that place where we kind of have to ask the question, we can't go back and undo what's happened, right? But forgiveness is available for that. And a new beginning is always possible with God. Any amens there? And the church is to be a place where we come together. And that's why you need to find, as Walter said earlier, a smaller group of, of grace-filled people, I pray. That when, things, when we're failing and we're struggling, we're not shocked. But we'll say, hey, we'll pray with you. We'll hold you accountable. We'll help you with this. And, and uh, together, that we'll be a place where people can find a place where we can do life in church together. I, is it possible that a big church can be a community like that? Where we who have received mercy and grace from God can show it to people who wonder if this is really real. That's what we're supposed to be, and that's what I long for us to be. Two things distinguished the church in the first two centuries that made it so that when people watched it, they came to Jesus. I mean, the church spread through the known world. You know what they were? A commitment to lasting marriages and care for the poor. Care for the poor. A commitment to lasting marriages when the rest of the world was giving out divorces quickly and care for the poor. Uh, Roy Clemens said this. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and practically everybody their money. I think that speaks to the 21st century world that we have an opportunity to declare to a broken world what God is like.
with Jesus' teaching in our hands. Lots of prayer in our hearts and dependence upon God. And I believe with the counsel and support of grace-filled people in our church. We can experience that God forgives, he restores, and he guides until that last day comes. And all is recreated. And that brings us to communion today. Um, Why don't I read that text Jesus, so that we could have our relationship with God to be uh, restored again, was in very nature God, yet did not consider equality with God. It's Philippians 2, 5, 6. Equality with God is something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man... Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I I feel like the disciples were complaining, but I have to give up so much to keep these relationships together. This is so hard. And this was just before Jesus was going to bear their sins in his body on the tree. And he says, I will be with you. And so for us to make a commitment to his ways, we need to take time to remember what he did for us. That's what always motivates us, isn't it? Remembering the love and grace of God and what he's done for us.